0: Well, we've come a long way this week, haven't we? Covered a couple of thousand years of time, and uh, you've been very patient, you've been very faithful to learn. I hope this has been interesting and inspiring to you, to learn what your brothers and sisters have gone through, through the generations, to learn how people obey and disobey God and what the consequences of that are when we make those choices and we find ourselves walking along the path that scripture defines or we find ourselves maybe making compromises at times. You know when I do premarital counseling with folks one of the things I always tell them is I say you need to spend time with the families with each other's families, because you marry the family. You don't just marry the individual, right? And before you get married, you want to know about the crazy aunt in the attic, right? You want to know the the secrets and the stuff that is normal and understood in theirs, right? Okay, this afternoon, what we're going to do is we are going to pull the crazy ant out of the attic so to speak we're going to talk about stuff that honestly some of the stuff we shouldn't be proud of some of the stuff that uh, exists and I say we I don't mean we in the sense that you and I caused this but I'm saying in our immediate past our immediate history some of these things we're going to talk about are not things that uh will draw people to the church. They're not things, I think, sometimes that glorify Christ. So let's get in here and talk about this. We covered persecuted Christianity and imperial Christianity and Christendom. We've covered reformed Christianity and restored Christianity. And now we're going to talk about modern Christianity. And when I say modern, I mean in the last hundred years. Did you like the idea of unity that we talked about this morning? did you think that was a good idea? Lots of people thought that was a good idea. There were thousands upon thousands upon thousands who came into that idea, and there was a tremendous growth in the church during that period of time. A lot of excitement, a lot of progress, a lot of good happened. You know, when you look back through the history of The church from the beginning that we started talking about, the first 250 years were the infant church reaching the world. And they did. And they were an infant church and they were persecuted, but they were pure. And they reached the world of that time. Then you had the imperial church coercing the world. The church under the rule of Rome coercing those who were not Christians to accept, at least in word, the Christian faith. Then you had the Catholic church controlling the world for close to a thousand years. And then you had the denominations dividing the church. From that point, we had Christians uniting the church in the 1600s to the 1900s and now, what is this last period of time going to be? Well, this last period of time is, oddly enough, the restorationists redividing the church. There has been a tremendous amount of division within this restoration movement. You would think a unity movement built on the idea that we all need to unify wouldn't produce division. Wouldn't you think that? I would think that but that's not what happened that's not what happened at all this unity division or unity division that's not even a thing that's an oxymoron like a true lie this unity movement that began with such glory and fervor and excitement and great ideas that let's just have unity on the bible and the essential things and give people liberty in their opinions And love each other has turned into many times in many places bitter fighting over personal prejudices and personal opinions. And it's caused a lot of heartache and a lot of division. I'm not saying every division was that way, but a lot of them have been. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom whom you have given to me, that they may be one as we are one. That was the restoration plea. The restoration heritage, I've got this diagram up here. You got the Bible there in the middle and I've got liberal on one side and I've got radical on the other. Now, if I knew another word for liberal, I'd use it because I believe any departure from the word of God is liberal. Whether you depart in a more conservative way or a more loose way, I believe it's liberal to leave the word of God. Okay, so really I personally would call both of those liberal, but I don't have, maybe after church you can give me another word for liberal there. But the idea is this, these are people who do what the Bible says, these are people who think what the Bible says doesn't matter, these are people who add lots of rules and things to the Bible that aren't in the Bible, okay, and we had a spectrum of people who joined and came, became a part of this, this movement. And all of these groups right here, the First Christian Church, is there a First Christian Church here in town? Okay. Disciples of Christ, is there a Disciples of Christ here? Not one of those here. What about Assemblies of God? Is there an Assembly of God? What about Church of the Nazarene? Okay. Originally, all these groups were part of this restoration movement. Originally, all these different denominational groups all came together with the original idea that let's have unity in essentials, let's have liberty in opinion, and let's have charity in everything. But obviously, they're not all here today, right? And we're not there. So obviously, there have been some, at some point, some divisions. We're going to talk about what happened and how that happened. The division among the unity movement, the very first divisions that really happened among this unity movement were divisions over parachurch organizations. Does that mean anything to you? Parachurch organizations? Okay. Look at this, para means alongside of, and it was things like missionary societies and orphanages and colleges, and the debate was this, we need to teach the gospel in foreign lands. Is that true? Do you agree with that? Absolutely, we need to do that, and you know what, we need people trained to go be missionaries, And it would be really good if people who have been missionaries could train people who are going over there because elders in a local congregation who haven't been missionaries, it's going to be hard for them to train guys to be missionaries, right? So what we ought to do is get a bunch of these guys who've been missionaries and let them train other people to go be missionaries. Let's start an organization to do that. Some people said, you know what, that's a good idea. Other people said, that's a terrible idea. You know what they did? They split over it. Some churches said, we'll support people to do that. Other churches said, we won't have anything to do with doing that. And they split. And when I say split, I don't mean this church said, no, we're not going to send our money to that. I mean these churches said, we're not going to support that. And if you do, you're not faithful to God. And other places said, How can it not be faithful to God to spread the gospel? We're going to support that, and if you won't support spreading the gospel, you're not faithful to God. You see how that happens? Now listen, I'm going to tell you that in all of these issues we're going to talk about, there were honest and sincere brethren on both sides of these issues. I'll tell you what else. In all of these issues we talk about, there were insincere and dishonest people on both sides of these issues. And our concern is with understanding why we are where we are today. So, let's go back. Orphanages. You think it's a good idea to support orphans? Somebody says, well, yeah. I mean, the Bible tells us to take care of the widows and the orphans. That's pure religion and undefiled, right? Somebody says, well, yeah, but that just means you individually do it. The church shouldn't be doing it. We ought to individually all adopt orphans. You think there are more orphans than we could adopt? (laughs) There are. So what do you do about the rest of them? Someone says, well, we could, you know, I'll I'll donate some land and build a building and we can put some house parents there and they can have a bunch of orphans and we can try to support and raise them and teach them God's Word. And someone else says, no, you can't do that. They go, why not? Well, because the church isn't in the business of supporting orphans. The church is in the business of spreading the gospel. you got a division over this. What about Christian education? Do you think it's a good idea to have Christian education? Should churches support that? Should they not? The the problem is not the difference of opinion. The problem is how we handle the difference of opinion, right? The problem is how we treat brethren who have a different opinion understanding or a different concept of what it means to take care of orphans okay look at this next thing that comes along instrumental music 1906 was the first time that instrumental music congregations were separated in the census from non-instrumental music you think it's good to have music you think music in a church is good what about instruments now, you'll notice this congregation here, we don't have a band, right? We don't have a piano over in the corner. This congregation does not have instrumental music. Do you think it's wrong? Do you think it's biblically wrong to have instruments? What verses would you use? you think, well, you know, it's okay. I don't see anything wrong with it. I mean, music enhances our experience. And, and you know, the early Reformers, this was a huge issue of division In the early reformers, even before the church came along, there were no instrumental music in congregations for hundreds of years after the church was started. And the first time they brought an organ into a church, it caused a huge uproar and a huge split, and they took it out and didn't try it again for several hundred years. Some guys, Martin Luther, had no problem with it. Martin Luther said, bring it on. He wanted the. In fact, Martin Luther. We have a song. I tried to get Ian to lead it, and he wouldn't lead it. I don't know why. But song written. He doesn't know the song's way. So it wouldn't lead it. Uh, song written by Martin Luther's in your books. A mighty fortress is our God. Maybe some of you've heard that. He would take and write words to songs they sang in bars, and put Christian words to them. So because people all knew the tune. And he let people sing because up until then people weren't singing. They had a choir that would perform, and they had, they had organs and stuff to play. He loved it. He thought that was a great idea. There are other of the reformers and other of the early church leaders that said no. The greatest church Baptist church preacher that ever was was a guy in uh, in London. And he's, he's written lots of books and stuff. He said this, I have no objection to instruments in, in the church service as long as they're not seen or heard. <laughs> he said, you can put a guitar in the corner and cover it up as long as I can't see it, it's no problem. Can't hear it. This was an issue. It was a problem. What do you all believe about that? I'm not asking you to tell me right now, but I'm saying, you know what? Churches of Christ, a lot of churches of Christ nowadays are beginning to add instruments Back in, they'll have, in the Dallas area especially, big churches, they'll have a contemporary service, and then they'll have a traditional service, one with and one without instruments. There was division over this. And brethren wouldn't worship together. Not only wouldn't they worship together, they would claim that other people who disagreed weren't really brethren. They weren't really fellow Christians. Instrumental music is what divided the disciples of Christ from the churches of Christ. That originally was the issue that caused this division so that now you have disciples of Christ and you have churches of Christ. And then the disciples of Christ split again and they became the first Christian church and the disciples of Christ. We don't have time to talk about the differences there. So when we talk specifically about churches of Christ now... You've got this whole range, and I'm fixing to put up here where I personally would put different groups on this range. Please don't be offended. It's not my intent to offend anyone. It's my intent to explain to you what I understand the biblical positions of different groups are, okay? And right here, you've got this list of all these different groups, and I've placed them on that line where I think they go. Now, way over here, you got ICOC, that is the International Churches of Christ. They are very similar to the Catholic Church. The church in Boston is the Mother Church, and it starts all the other churches, and they all report to the Mother Church. They have been the most successful group from the Restoration Movement in the last 50 years, bar none. Hands down, they've been more successful. They've started hundreds of large, large churches around the world, all over the world. But they're very, very different from what we are. They practice differently. They believe differently. They teach differently. But they come from this heritage. Then we've got what I call the promise keepers movement. And I, I, I struggled for a term for this. What it is, is there are a group of mainline churches that have Sunday school who have moved in a more liberal direction. A lot of them are adding instruments. They are de-emphasizing doctrines such as baptism for salvation. A lot of them are taking the name Church of Christ off of their sign, and they'll say Plum Creek Fellowship, and down at the bottom it'll say a Church of Christ family, you know, in small small letters. But they're removing the name Church of Christ. They're removing a lot of affiliations. And I call it the promise promise keepers movement because one of the main advocates and proponents of this is a guy named Max Lucado who's written a lot of books. He's an excellent writer. He's very motivational. But he spent a lot of time with the promise keepers promise keepers movement, and a lot of that, I believe, influenced him, and he brought that influence through through the influence of his books into churches, and lots and lots of churches are following that. You got here what I call mainline Sunday school churches. That's churches that worship like we do and function basically like we do, except for the fact that they have Sunday schools, and a lot of them will also have a full-time located minister, which is the next group here because there are churches that have a minister but don't have Sunday school. There aren't very many of those left. There's mutual edification and family integrated worship. That's a church like this one, okay? We don't have Sunday school here. We don't have one guy hired to be the pulpit man and to be the pastor, quote-unquote, of the church. And we all worship together. There are groups we call one container. Are y'all familiar with that? They're groups that believe that the communion should only the fruit of the vine has to be in one particular container. There are groups we call non institutional Sunday school. And they have Sunday school, but they've got a lot of rules and regulations about whether you can eat on the church property or you can't or exactly where on the church property you can eat and it's okay and what the money can be used for and they've, they've got all kinds of uh, restrictions and then down here last on this list I've got what I call the chain fellowship movement and we'll talk briefly about these as we go along. Okay in the 1920s the churches of Christ split over Sunday school. Now, originally, they didn't call it Sunday school. They called it Bible classes once it got into the churches of Christ. In fact, I've got some old debates that were, uh, they were had in public like this, but they wrote down, you know, what do you call that when you write down what everybody says? Yeah, they documented it. And uh, transcripts, that's what it was, transcripts of these debates. And a lot of the debates, a lot of times, was whether they're Sunday school or Bible classes. And they debated whether or not they were Sunday school or Bible classes, because originally they said Sunday school's wrong, but Bible classes aren't. And they had some distinctions that they made. So anyway, in the 1920s, the church divided over this. A few years ago, I was in London, and I was... Uh, with Brother Ray Cook from Bridgeport, and we took a, a shortcut through a park, and there were people set up around this statue here, and they were set up with TV cameras and stuff like that. And I said, "Wonder what this statue's about." So I went over and looked, and it was a statue. And you can't read that's me down there in the shadows, standing beside it. Okay, but here's what the statue says: Robert Rake's, founder of Sunday Schools, 1780. This statue was erected under the direction of the Sunday School Union by contributors from teachers, or contributions from teachers and scholars of Sunday schools in Great Britain, July 1880. That's where Sunday school came from. That guy right there, Robert Rakes, he was a a social crusader, and he was concerned because in England at that period of time, if you were poor, you didn't get an education. You had to go work all the time. If you were a kid rich kids got educated, but poor kids didn't. And he said, we need to be educating poor kids. Do you think that's a good idea? But they had to work all week. Only day they had off was Sunday. So he went to a Methodist church and said, hey, can I teach a school in your church building on Sunday for free to poor kids? Does that sound like a good idea? Sure. Sound like a great idea. Teach these poor kids. They said, well, you know, they need to be going to church on Sunday. He said, well, I tell you what, I'll teach them reading, writing, arithmetic, and religion. And that way they won't miss their religion. They said, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Well, you know, as time went on and they began to use tax money to pay for schools and, and education became basically free for all people, whether you were rich or poor, they didn't need to teach reading, writing, arithmetic anymore. But guess what? Churches were already having these schools and they teaching religion in it, and so they just continued doing that. The churches of Christ in the 1920s began to say, you know what? The Methodists and the Baptists and the Lutherans and all these have Sunday schools, and we don't, and lots of young people are going to be a part of that. Maybe we ought to have Sunday schools to bring young people. Plus, we got parents who aren't teaching their kids. What better way to teach them than with Sunday school? Now, You look at that and you go, well, we don't have Sunday school. Why not? I don't know. Have you all had any teaching on that here recently? Okay. It's a good thing for us to teach why we do what we do. I personally don't believe that Sunday school is as close to the Bible as other ways. Family integrated worship, for instance. But what happened here is churches started dividing over this. Churches started having conflict over this. And these congregations that added Sunday school have today split into at least 40 different groups. Some of them are non institutional, some of them are premillennial. They believe that there's going to be a rapture. Some of them are like these Promise Keeper. Some of them have women teachers. Some of them have instrumental music. Some of them believe Jesus came back in A.D. 70, and that was the coming of Christ, the second coming, and Jesus is never going to come back again. He's already come back again. Some of them, the Boston movement, some of them accept homosexuality. And some of them uh, are charismatic and speak in tongues. There's lots and lots of different divisions that's happened here. The next division to divide the churches of Christ was one container. That was over how many containers you have on the Lord's table. And the argument is this. Jesus, when he established the Last Supper, when he established communion, the Bible says he took the cup and took the bread, and he took the cup and he gave it to the disciples and said, Here, drink. And the argument was Jesus took a cup. He didn't take a bunch of cups. And I was here this morning. Y'all use a bunch of different cups. And the argument was you've got to just use one cup and everyone has to drink out of that one cup because that's what Jesus did. And they were very serious about that. And there was a division over how many containers you used. To, does that seem silly to you? To divide the church over how many containers? I look at that and I think, Really? But the truth of the matter is it was very important to these people. Now, I'll tell you, there's a church in Georgia that I've I've known about. I've not worshiped there. But they took a tray just like this one, and they cut the middle out of it and put a big cup right in the middle. And if people believe they need to take out of that one container, they all drink out of that big cup in the middle. And those that don't will drink out of the little cups around the sides. You know what? I think that's a pretty good solution to people who have an issue over this matter. But there was division over that. Those groups are split into about 20 different groups. Uh, Some of them say the grape juice has to be fermented, and some say it can't be fermented. Uh, Some say you break the bread, and some say you don't break the bread. And uh, I had some family members that attended one of these that said you should not break the bread. And they had a visitor one Sunday, a lady who came from congregations that said, you have to break the bread. So when the communion bread came to her, she just broke it before she sent it on down the line. This was a little country church. They were out in the country, had the windows open on a nice spring day, and it got down to the end of the row. And one of the ladies down at the end of the row picked up one of those pieces and just sailed it right out the window and passed it on. (laughs) Now, we laugh about that because that's kind of funny, honestly. It really is. But, but the reality is there was division over that. There's division over whether you pray before or after dividing the juice. Some of the places say it's okay to put it in separate containers as long as it's in one container when you say the prayer. And they've got this contraption that sits up on top of the communion deal and you've got all the juice in the middle and once you say the prayer, then you push a button and it goes out all these little tubes and all the little different con- uh, different cups. Uh, contribution on the table or not. I noticed y'all have contribution. You've got baskets at the back, right? Okay. Uh, most congregations will pass trays or baskets around. Okay. There are a group of them that believe the Bible says we are to lay by him in store, right? Well, where is he? Well, he's the bread and the juice, right? So you have to put a basket on the table beside the bread and the juice and everyone has to come up and lay it by him in store. And they won't fellowship with anyone else. They call this a test of fellowship, see? And this is a test to determine whether you're really a Christian, whether you're really a child of God or you're not. Whether they wear gold or not or cut their hair or not, uh, divided over divorce and remarriage. The next division that happened within the churches of Christ was what I call the pastor system. My father calls it the preacher business. But uh, whatever you call it, the idea was this... The guy came up with the idea that a lot of our teaching stinks. We got guys that aren't prepared, guys that aren't good teachers. They stand up here and they stay in the pulpit and they don't edify the church. We need some educated people who are trained and professional and good at teaching. Do you think it's important to have good teaching? I think that's important to have good teaching. Other people said, no, the Bible says you can all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted. We don't need to hire one guy. What we need to do is just train all the guys we have so we have better teaching. There was division about that. Some people said, you know what, that's a great idea. We can start some schools and train some of these young guys and we can have really good teaching." Other people said, no, 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 we shouldn't do that. Now, the truth is there are very few congregations left today that don't have Sunday school that just have a preacher, okay? Very few of those. When I say a preacher, I don't mean somebody who's preaching, but I mean a guy hired to be the pastor or preacher of the church. Then 1960, there was a division in the 60s over chain fellowship. Now, that came actually from this division right here back in the late 50s some of you may remember this there was a big meeting out here in west texas of elders and uh, leaders of churches and they got together to discuss that and out of that meeting walked out two distinct groups some that said we're going to hire preachers and some that said we're not okay but the group that said we're not All of a sudden, I say all of a sudden, over the course of the next few years, ended up splitting into two groups. And those two groups were this. One group said, no, we're not going to hire a preacher. We don't think that's best. We think the men of the church ought to teach. We believe in mutual edification. We believe that's what ought to be done. That's what we're going to do. But we still love those brethren. They're still our brethren. We're still going to work with them. We're not going to cause division over this as far as not fellowshipping with them or not working with them or not having any association. We're not going to do that. But there was a group of men who said, no, you can't do that. And if you do that, you're not faithful to God anymore. And so we're not going to have anything to do with anyone who will hire a preacher. Not only that... We're not going to have anything to do with anyone who will have anything to do with people who will hire a preacher. Now that'll teach them, and that division happened. And you know, what happens when you have someone who won't cut off people who won't cut off people, who won't cut off the people who hired a preacher? Well, we've got to cut them off, too. Well what about the people who won't cut off them, 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 who won't cut off them? You see, what you end up with is what I call chain fellowship. And the ultimate idea behind that is if you go to a church that does something wrong, you're guilty of their sin. That makes you guilty of their sin because you participated with them. You went and fellowship people you shouldn't have fellowshiped. And if you come back then to our congregation, let's just assume Denton, uh, uh, Denton was doing something you guys didn't like, that you believed was wrong. You couldn't have me come preach here because I go to Denton. If we had Ian for a meeting at Denton and then he comes back here, you can't use Ian anymore because Ian's been corrupted by our sin. Now, if Ian would get up and make a confession of fault in front of the church, then you could use him again. But if he won't do that, then you can't use him anymore. And, well, maybe you have one member of the church here who says, that's silly, I'm going to ask Ian to say a prayer. Well, as soon as Ian says that prayer, then you're all guilty of the sin of the church at Denton because y'all have used Ian in the church here. You see how that goes? Does that seem ridiculous to you? It does to me. It was a big division in the church, though. My wife's family was raised in that part of the churches of Christ. And it was a very, very challenging and difficult thing for any of them to get out. Now, the truth is there's not a whole lot of those left. Their basic doctrine is the leadership must keep the church pure. They do this by withdrawing from those who cross the leadership. Small, it's a small-time version of the papacy of the pope. They have one or two men who are in charge, and they make the final calls about who is and is not faithful. They used to publish a... Do they still publish the church messenger in? There was a church paper they put out, and it had a list of faithful churches you could attend. And if you attended a church that wasn't on that list, you were in trouble. Now, when the New Testament church was started, it was right on the Bible. But they swung by 600 or so AD. They had a pope. They were way away from the Bible. But then they began a movement back. They began the Reformation movement that brought them back toward the Bible. And that continued with the Restoration movement that brought people back toward the Bible. But once we got back to the Bible and the Restoration movement, then we began to split and divide again. You see how that is? Now, here's the question I really want to get to with y'all as we, we close this series. Who is responsible for the division? Whose fault is it? You might say, well, it's the people who added the innovation, of course. It's always the people who add the innovation. We didn't have Sunday school. Somebody adds Sunday school. It's their fault if the church divides over that. We didn't have instrumental music. Somebody adds instruments. It's their fault if the church divides over that. We don't have a hired preacher. Somebody hires a preacher. It's their fault if the church divides over that. We don't have multiple containers. Somebody adds... Uh-oh. Wait. That's going to give us a bit of trouble, isn't it? I mean, you can't just say it's the people who do something we hadn't always done. Who did cause the division? You know what the truth is? The truth is congregations are autonomous. Okay, And when something came to a church like here, like here in Pampa, say Sunday school, and churches start adding Sunday schools, the elders would have to talk about, are we going to add Sunday school? And in those congregations, you always had some people who said, yes, let's add Sunday school. And you had other people who said, no, let's don't add Sunday school. Who has to make the decision for this congregation? The elders do. They may be on different sides of this issue. What do you do? You know what happened most of the time? The elders would make a decision and they would say, we are not going to add Sunday school. Or we are going to start having Sunday school. And the people who didn't like the decision, a lot of times would say, oh yeah, we are too going to have Sunday school. And if y'all won't do it, we're going to go down the block. And buy another piece of property and start a church and we'll have Sunday school. Or they would say, oh no, we're not. We're not. I don't care what you elders say. This church won't have Sunday school. And if it does, we're going down the street and we're going to start another one that doesn't have Sunday school. You know what happens sometimes? Sometimes you'd have three or four elders. Maybe three of them agree to add Sunday school and one is against it. This happened in Gunner, Texas the brethren who didn't want to add Sunday school, they show up at church on Sunday and the doors are locked. They've changed the locks and those brethren aren't welcome here anymore because they don't want Sunday school. What do you do? They went down the street and started another congregation. You know, in different situations, it was different people who caused the divisions over these issues. There were churches that for a while would have Sunday school and went, you know what, that's, that's not working. It's not doing what we thought it would do. Let's get rid of it. And the people who stayed, who didn't believe in Sunday school, that church never split. Those things happen. But the vast majority of the time, people get entrenched on one side or the other. And they start arguing and they get mad at each other. And instead of having, now listen, I'm not saying there's no difference in Sunday school and not Sunday school. I'm not saying there's no difference in any of those things on that list. I have my personal preferences and beliefs that one side or the other on each of those splits is closer to the Bible. I personally believe that. But I don't know that we've done this kingdom of God a lot of service by getting angry at people and dividing the body of Christ, and hating our brethren. Listen, the Bible says when you believe, repent of your sins, and you're baptized into Jesus Christ, you're born again. Is that true? Do you believe that? Is that true? That's true. When people obey the gospel, they're born again. They become Christians. They become children of God, just like you and me. Well, I don't I don't go to churches that have Sunday school normally. I don't work with those congregations because I I believe that there are better ways to do it than Sunday school personally, okay? So I would say I believe that's an error, but I don't believe that makes them not Christians. I believe it's something that I wouldn't do that my conscience would not allow me to do, but it doesn't make them not Christian. I think we have to love each other. I think we have to understand that I'm going to misunderstand some stuff. I'm going to be wrong about some stuff. And I would hope if I'm wrong about something, you love me enough to teach me. And if I don't immediately accept it, you spend years if it's necessary teaching me and helping me get to that and showing me that you love me as a brother in the Lord. Not that you'd cut me off immediately because I do something you think I shouldn't do. And I'm telling you this stuff... In real, as honest, and open as I can, because I believe it's shameful that we have divided the body of Christ over and over and over and over again. And I'm convinced that people just like you and me will do it again. Be some different issue, some different challenge, but I'm convinced we'll do it again because that's the way human beings are. We're divisive and we're hard-hearted, Sometimes when we don't love each other. Now, this isn't always the case. Sometimes there's love. Sometimes love reigns over. And I've seen in my lifetime a lot of change a lot of change of some of these old hard attitudes where anyone who's not exactly like we are isn't really a christian and isn't really faithful. I've seen some of you older guys you've seen that haven't you? You've seen changes in in those old hard positions. And I'm not saying we don't stand for the lord, we don't stand for the bible, we do, but we stand for what the bible specifically says. We don't divide the body over, well, if the Bible says this, then it means this. And if that's true, then this is true. And if that's true, then this is true. And if that's true, this is true. If that's true, this is true. And if that's true, this is true. And therefore, you're not where I am, so you're not a Christian. I think that causes us a lot of damage. I think that's caused a lot of harm in the church. The Bible says that we are to make disciples of all nations teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. It's important for us to obey all the commands of God. But you see what happens when I, if I personally am a liberal-minded person? Look at this. What you see depends on where you stand. If you're standing way down here, if you're radical in your mindset, you're going to see a liberal behind every tree. You're going to see a liberal everywhere you look because... That's where you're standing. you know how many people you're going to think are radical? Almost nobody. If you're on the other end of this spectrum, and if you're really liberal in your mindset about stuff, everywhere you look, you're going to see legalists. You're going to see legalists everywhere. They're just overrunning the church. You're going to have legalists everywhere. Why? Because this is where you're standing. You're standing way down here. I had a man tell me one time, he said, I've never met a legalist. (laughs) I said, Really? Guess what? Because that's the mindset that this person had. Okay? So, this is where we want to be. We want to stand on truth. That's what we want to do. And listen, I've talked openly. If you're a visitor in the congregation here, I want you to know I am not trying to offend you. I'm not trying to belittle you in any way. I'm trying to just be honest about where the church is today and how we got here, okay? We need to be honest with the Scriptures. I've told my kids, and I really believe this, if you really believe Catholicism is right, you need to be a Catholic. If you really believe Muhammad was the prophet from God, you need to be a Muslim. You don't need to be sitting here with us. If you re- We all need to do what we really believe God wants us to do. But that needs to be informed by this right here. And when that's informed by this right here, and I do what I really believe God wants me to do, that's what makes me right with Him. That's what helps me be walking. How can I really believe something different and walk this way and then stand in front of God and go, well, you know, my family was all, really? We need to do what we think is right. And the only way you can do that is by studying this book, learning this book, and not just listening to other people. And if you'll do that and you'll study this book, if you'll remain in my word, then you'll be what? You remember it? My disciples indeed. You want to be a true disciple of Jesus? Stay in this book. I don't expect you to be perfect. I don't expect you to be sinless. I don't expect you to never make mistakes. And I hope you don't expect that of me. Because I'm not going to be perfect or sinless. And I'm going to make mistakes. I've changed my mind about a lot of things through the years. We have to have, without that middle piece of liberty in areas that are not specifically legislated by God. Without that, we'll just continue to fragment and split and divide. And without that critical bottom piece of in all things charity, it won't bother us. We'll feel justified in dividing the body of Christ. And it's my great desire and my great concern for you, the that you not be that way now i want to close with some recommendations today's climate is this growing hostility toward christianity you know that right okay there's increasing value of tolerance and when i say value i mean it's valued by our culture we're supposed to tolerate everything nowadays a decreasing sense of brand loyalty when i was a kid a baptist when they moved to a different town they went to a baptist church because they were baptist I hate the term brand loyalty. I, don't, I ask Ian for a better term. I don't have a better term. But lots and lots of people who grow up in churches of Christ just like this, when they go to college or they move off, they just look for a church they like. They don't look for a church of Christ. They just look for somewhere they like to go to church. That's our culture. We need to know that. We need to be aware. And selfishness is becoming Respectable. What I mean by that is it's fine. It's not just fine. It's expected that you're just going to look for something that meets your needs religiously. It's going to be all about you. Let me ask you a quick question. Do you think Jesus would have carried around a selfie stick? Last Supper picture, everyone. I mean, he wouldn't have done that. It's not about you. It's about pleasing God. Okay, but in our culture, that doesn't seem to be the case. So here's some specific recommendations out of this series that I have. Number one, be ready for an influx of people. What would you do here if one of the churches in town said, you know what, we're just going to shut down and go join this congregation? What would you do? How would you all handle that? Be ready for that. That might happen. I know of places where that has happened. How are you going to handle that? I think you need to spend time as leaders in the congregation thinking about what we would do. Number two, avoid extremism. Extremism is not good. I've known people who were so against Sunday school that they wouldn't even teach their own kids the Bible. That's crazy. You have to avoid extremism because extremism produces extremism. So let's be sure that we stand on scripture, but we don't try to run so far and so hard to get away from everything else. Judge everything by the scriptures. You have no scripture. You gave me no verse. Why is it wrong? It just seems denominational. But so does having a revival in the week, and we do that. I mean, I'm not going to be judged by God based on whether or not it seems denominational. I'm going to be judged by God on whether it aligns with what His Word says. And we don't need to be worried about what people in town think about us. We need to be worried about what Jesus thinks about us. What God tells us to do. Okay? Get serious about church. Listen, I'm going to say this at the risk of offending somebody. Now, I don't know you and I don't know how you live your life or what you do, but the church has got to be more important than ball games. The church has got to be more important than us going to parties and us taking vacations. The church has got to be more important. It's got to. And if it's not, we're not going to be strong. But I'm going to tell you, if we're going to stand and say we're going to stand up and lead for God's people, we got to get serious about this. It's got to be more important. Somebody says, well, you know... We, we try, to, try to get there as much as we can, but we got stuff going on. And, and I'll tell you, the reason people aren't here is because they believe what's going on somewhere else is more important than what's going on here. Like I said, my intent is not to offend anyone, but just to be honest, if we're going to move forward in this culture, we've got to be serious about the church. We have to be a people of initiative. We can't just do what we've always done and sinned and just sit and just hold services. we got to do something. And if we don't do something, you know who will do something? It's all your fringe members, and they'll all leave. That's what they'll do. They'll go somewhere else where something's happening. And I don't say this as a rebuke because I don't, I don't know what all y'all have going on. You need to do something. Be involved. Be aggressive in evangelism. How many people are there in Pampa? 20,000. You think all 20,000 have heard the gospel? It's your job to make sure they do. It's your job to make sure that every person here hears the gospel. They need the gospel. We need to be aggressive. You need to have an intentional campaign. Somebody says, well, door knocking doesn't work. Okay, do something different. But do something to teach the gospel. Be aggressive in that. Make plans to deal with the future challenges. We don't know all what they're going to be, but I'll tell you what some of them are going to be. The church is going to be under attack from the LGBTQ community and there's going to be legal attacks. There's going to be all kinds of problems we're going to have. We need to be prepared for that and ready for it because we're going to stand on what God says. And finally, I close with this. You need to learn from the past. The Old Testament is full of stories of people who obeyed and disobeyed God and what happened. History that we've studied is full of stories about those who obeyed and disobeyed God. Let's learn from that. Let's think about it. Let's not just go, wow, that was some interesting stuff. But let's learn from it. And let's, let's not be divisive. But let's not throw caution to the wind. Let's keep our nose in our own business. And let's do the best that we can to serve God. You can't be the best Christian that's ever lived, maybe. But you can be the best Christian you can be. This may not be the best church in the whole world. But you can be the best church you can be and that's what we have got to dedicate all of ourselves to doing let's be serious about this it's a great commission it's a great call from God and I can promise you this if you'll throw everything you've got into being active and involved and committed to Jesus Christ and his kingdom you'll never regret it you will never someday go man I wish I'd spent more time at the ball fields instead of trying to teach people the gospel, that'll never happen. And you'll be rewarded greatly because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You need to remember that. That's my final admonition to you. Your labor in the Lord will not be in vain. Be faithful, be strong. Thank you for your time and your interest in this. I love coming here. I love all of you brethren so much. You just treat me like I'm family and I I truly believe I am family here. Uh, We would love to invite all of y'all to come visit us in McKinney or the Denton area. Not all at once, but come, you know, a family at a time. We'd love to show you some return hospitality. If you're ever in the Dallas area, really, we love you. And let's move forward as we serve Jesus with the rest of our lives. You don't have that long left, so move forward and serve Jesus. If you need some help from the church, please make that known while we stand and sing.